Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we continue in our exploration of this book of the Bible. And as a part of this preliminary introduction, uh, what I've titled Setting the Stage, this is the second part of that. And so we know in the inscription, the salutation that Paul is addressing the church in Corinth is a church that is in disarray. It's dysfunctional in many ways, and it seems to be in a state of turmoil. And so Paul has learned of the issues that are taking place within the church at Corinth. He is not in Corinth. He can't deal with it directly, so he is going to write to them a series of letters, the first of which is not recorded for us in the Bible. It did not survive history. Paul makes an allusion to that letter. But here we have what would be the first recorded letter for us to read, which I'm assuming is, in some respects, a continuation of what was begun in the first letter. And then, obviously, there's a third letter, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that we're not looking at in our study here today. So, Paul is dealing with the dysfunctionality within the church, the strife that exists over rival teachers, over sexual immorality, including incest, over lawsuits within the body of unruly worship, of abuse with communion, battles over the prevalence and superiority of spiritual gifts, denial of a physical bodily resurrection. And so in these first nine verses that we're looking at, Paul is setting forth, he's establishing the four themes that will be the basis of everything that he is going to say to this church as a result of what it is he's learned about them. Now, as a bit of a review, as we've looked at these four things, the first one is Paul's authority. He says in verse 1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul's just not some random guy. He's not some random teacher. He's not somebody that has a vested ulterior motive in addressing them, but Paul is an apostle by the will of God. God called him. He did not call himself. The church in Jerusalem did not call him. But as Paul, who was trained as a Pharisee, was zealously defending what he understood to be the true nature of God as he was on the road to Damascus, Jesus visited him and struck him blind and called him, saved him. And in this relationship, Paul is now called an apostle of God by the will of God, which means he's going to speak to the people on behalf of God. But he's not speaking just to the church in Corinth, which would be a group of believers, but he's preaching, teaching, talking to God's church. This is what he says And verse 2a, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And so it's very important for us to understand, just as it was the church that resided in Corinth, that it isn't our church, it's not my church, it isn't their church, it is God's church. God is Lord over the church. He is the head of the church. The church is his body. It is the bride of Christ. We don't belong to ourselves, but we belong to him. So Paul, as an apostle of God is going to speak to God's church and instruct them in the way that they should live. Now, a part of what Paul begins to set the stage for as he addresses the myriad of issues that are taking place within the church is they have been sanctified. This is what he says in the latter part of verse 2. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by Christ positionally, you and I, at the moment of our salvation, 
are made to be holy and righteous, just like Christ is. But in our practice on this earth, we have to live out this sanctification. And that means that we are to be made holy through the transforming work of God's word so that our lives would reflect more clearly who Jesus is and the kind of life that Jesus himself lived. So when we call one another saints, we aren't calling each other a saint because we are a perfectly completed project. We call one another saints because in our standing before Christ, he sees us as we are going to be, not as we actually are. Now, this is important because Paul, after he gets through these first nine verses, is going to make it abundantly clear how unlike saints they really are. But he is establishing on the very beginning this important reality, and that is this. Our position in Christ, as having been sanctified, needs to align with the lives that we are living. We are being sanctified, which means we are looking less and less like the unredeemed people that we once were, and we're looking more and more like the Christ who has saved us. We read this in Hebrews 10.10, By this will, his salvation to us, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This speaks of our position. Christ doesn't have to continually be crucified so that we can be sanctified. He's already established that. He's already made it possible for us to be pursuing our sanctification. So we are to live out the sanctification by applying God's word to our lives and living consistently with it. That's the rub, right? We know what God's word says, but how consistently do we do what God's word instructs us to do? How consistently are we like the people that God has declared we should be? We read this in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So here's how this works. God has made it possible for us to be holy, but he doesn't just wave a magic wand over our lives and all of the sin and all of the trash is just automatically removed from us. We have to devote ourselves to the truth of God's word and living out what God's word says we should do and how we should be. For example, we know that we are to love one another and forgive one another. Isn't that right? But does God just wave the wand over us and we automatically love one another and forgive one another? No, we have to deny ourselves. We have to give up the right to be wronged so that we can be in right relationship with one another. I don't forgive you because you're deserving of it. I forgive you because Christ forgave me. And the expectation is that because I have been forgiven, I am to forgive one another. We are to forgive one another. So forgiveness doesn't come automatically. We have to cleanse ourselves from our natural tendency to be angry, to become bitter, to be resentful, to show you what you're deserving of, 
or to get justice in some form or fashion. That's not who we are saved to be. And so we are to be more like Christ. We are to pursue the sanctification that Christ has made available to us. So he is speaking to the church at Corinth, which is God's church. And the other thing that Paul establishes in the preliminary parts of this letter is that there is a universal identity within the family of God. This little church here in Kennett Square is universally connected to every believing church in all of the world. What we say and what we do has an impact on the body of Christ. It has an impact on the reputation of Christ. And what we say and do can have a positive influence on those who are not a part of the believing body. For example, have you heard of churches that have gone through ridiculous splits over the most ridiculous of issues? And you think, well, how can a church that loves God split over something as menial as changing the time of a worship service? It happens. It really does happen. How many times have you heard of a pastor or a high-profile Christian who has moral failure, and you'll, you'll hear people in the workplace or in the community say, well, you know, those Christians are all hypocrites. You can't believe a thing any of them say. Have you heard that? That is a part of this universal identity that you and I share with God's church everywhere. This is what Paul says in the latter part of verse 2, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So there is this call to have an identity within God's church. There is this call to listen to who it is God has called to speak to them, the Apostle Paul, who comes upon the authority of God, not upon his own authority, or a group of believers who would be in Jerusalem. So the church of God in Corinth is part of God's universal church, believers from all over the world who have also been sanctified through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's the review of what we looked at last week. And here's our focal passage for this morning, verses 4 through 9 out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's what God's word says. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we begin now with the third theme that Paul is going to establish in this book to, this, to the church at Corinth. And number three is, they have been filled with grace and gifts. Now, what to me is particularly interesting in this section of Scripture is this. Paul is expressing thankfulness for the people who make up this church, even though it is filled and dominated by dysfunctional Christians. Think about that. Paul isn't giving thanks for the finished product. Paul is giving thanks because there is evidence of grace and gifts. Paul's thankfulness is rooted in the spiritual realities of that church, not in the human accomplishment. This is very important, and I hope we understand the significance 
of what this really means. First of all, Paul is thankful for the grace given. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. So as Paul looks upon this dysfunctional group of believers who reside in the city of Corinth, there is certainty about the salvation that they enjoy since the grace of God is the free, unmerited, saving work of God towards us in Christ Jesus. So when we look at our church, we can give God thanks always because the evidence of His grace that exists within the church. Even though we're unfinished projects, even though we might possess some level of dysfunctionality, we can still give thanks for the evidence of the spiritual root that God has created in this group of believers. Now look what Paul says. Paul says, I give thanks to God always for the grace given to you. Why does Paul give thanks to that? Because it is the grace of God which enables the lost to be saved. It is the grace of God that enables the saved to be sanctified. It is the grace of God which secures our future residency in heaven for all of eternity. If our salvation and if our sanctification and if our eternal glory was dependent upon what you and I did, guess what? We don't stand a chance. We can't even get out of the blocks. We are dead in our tracks. But thankfully, all of that is a part of the grace of God. It is the same grace of God that has called Paul to be an apostle. It is the same grace that has allowed these people to be a part of God's universal church. And it is this same grace that has completed the work of sanctification for them as they and as we are in the process of being made holy in this world. Paul is again establishing one of the central themes in this section, and that is the source of grace for their salvation is in Christ alone, and it has nothing to do with themselves. The grace of God in your life has nothing to do with you. It's all about God. It's all about Him looking upon you. It's all about God awakening you in your spirit. It's all about God allowing you to understand the truth. It's all about God doing, completing, sealing us in this gift of salvation. The source of grace for their salvation, the source of grace for our salvation is in Christ alone. Now, for the city of Corinth, What we need to understand, and we won't go into great detail, is that it was a very prominent city. It happened to be situated around two major roadways, and it was also situated in a very busy seaport. So it was very affluent, it was very influential, and the citizens of Corinth were very proud that that was their identity, much like Americans can be, that we are from the land of America, and we are entitled, and you should look upon us with favor, and you can't do that to me because I'm an American. You hear people say that when they go to a foreign country? 
Yeah, they say that. I'm an American. You can't do that to me. Well, unfortunately, your laws don't apply here. And we forget that sometimes because we're proud of our identity. So as this church in Corinth looked around at their unbelieving, excuse me, at their believing community, there was undoubtedly some sense of pride over what they had, and there was probably some some pride, some proudfulness about the way God had chosen to bless them. But again, God is the source of the blessing. God is the source of the grace they enjoy. It has nothing to do with the people themselves. We need to be reminded of that. We have what I believe to be a very beautiful facility. It has nothing to do with us. It's about the grace of God. Yeah, but we're the people that gave the money. You gave the money because God gave you the money to give. You gave the money because God prompted you to give. What we give is for His glory. Is that right? We give because it's God's church. And we want to share the grace that we've been given. And we do so by supporting the work of the church. Whether it be in the building of the building, or the, or the continuation of its ministries, or by the investment in the missionaries who go out from this place. It's all about the grace of God. And our pride should be in the grace that God has blessed us with. And it has nothing to do with ourselves. So the evidence of this spiritual grace that has resulted in their salvation, number two, has been verified with spiritual gifts. So the source of grace that brings about salvation, that grace is the same source of the spiritual gifts that this church and every church enjoys. Verse 5, that in everything... You were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Now, do you see that? What does Paul say there? In everything, you were enriched. How? In him. Not in yourself. Not in your service. Not in your faithfulness. Not in your sacrifice. In him. The same thing is true for us today. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ. Not in ourselves. Not in our service. Not in our knowledge. Not in our giftedness. But in Him and in Him alone. Now, what Paul is going to do, and what Paul does here, is he narrows the focus of the spiritual gifts because he, again, is establishing one of the central themes, and that is going to be the usage of spiritual gifts. And so he does something very important here as he identifies two of these gifts. First one, letter A, is speech. Now, this will later be applied specifically to the speaking gifts, which would include teaching and prophecy and wisdom, etc., etc. And Paul does, excuse me, Paul has a very extended look into spiritual gifts. And basically what Paul says is this. All gifts are equally important, even though others are more public. Right? So someone say, well, you're the pastor, you're the teacher, you're the one that's up in front of people. You have the most important gift in all the church. Well, that might be some 
person's perspective. But I'll guarantee you this. If you've got 25 children in your worship service who are talking and crying and making a fuss, the pastors are going to say, well, okay, the people in the nursery, they are so important to the ministry of this church. Why? Because I can actually concentrate on what I'm doing. I'm not distracted by what's going on in the building. Those people are incredibly important, even though no one hears the thing they say, even though no one may directly benefit from what they do, And so this is what Paul does. Paul establishes later on that all of these gifts are important, but because there was a misuse of spiritual gifts, the church of Corinth believed that the speech gifts were the most prominent, and because that was their perspective, they were the most important people in the church. Letter B, Paul identifies knowledge. Knowledge is simply the information that is being taught or shared by those who have the speech gifts. It is the content of what is being said. So speech and knowledge go hand in hand because our words reflect the knowledge or the, or the lack of knowledge that we possess. So since Paul is talking about spiritual gifts, speech and knowledge reflect the teaching of God's word or speaking the truth of God to other people. Now, Paul, as an apostle, has a very unique giftedness, as just the apostles did, in getting from God the inspiration or the revelation of his holy, inerrant, eternal word, and they alone breathe that revelation into the hearts and minds of people, Teachers teach what has been revealed. So there's a uniqueness in that. But Paul is going to speak specifically about the speech gift and the knowledge that accompanies that gift. So Paul is talking about the spiritual gift. Speech and knowledge reflect the teaching of God's word or speaking the truth of God to others. So what we say about God or about Jesus is rooted in the knowledge we have And this knowledge is given where? In the Word of God. Or through the revelation of the apostles' teaching, which again was given by God to them. So one of the most disappointing things for me is listening to people who speak things based upon an incorrect or an incomplete knowledge of what God's Word says. I use the word speech there intentionally. Here is one of the exercises that you can do to get an understanding of just how frustrating this is and how damaging it can be. All day long today, on cable TV, there will be a limitless number of teachers, quote-unquote, who are teaching God's Word, quote-unquote, and it is filled with inaccuracy. It is filled with things that just aren't consistent with what God's Word says. And so... If we have the speech gifts, what we say is to be rooted in the truth of God's word. And if we aren't speaking the truth of God's word, then we got a big problem. We are misusing what is a spiritual gift and it's not accomplishing what God has intended. For example, listen to this. Let's look at just some of the attributes of God. Think about these things. I'm going to go very, very quickly. God is eternal. God is infinite. He is self-existent. He is sovereign. He rules over everything. He is unchangeable, the same yesterday, today, forever. He is 
omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is eminent. He is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. He is loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. And He is just. So these are true in the fullest sense of the word. And to reduce God to something less than this would be completely untrue. And so when we hear people speak things about God and His attributes that aren't true, it should be infuriating to us. It should, it should help us to identify where truth needs to be injected into the hearts and lives of lost and saved people alike because they're speaking things that just aren't true about God. Well, if God were a God of love, then he wouldn't allow that tornado to wreak havoc in that town and have 50 people die. Have you hear people say things like that? It happens all the time. Every time there's a natural disaster, there's some Yehu out there saying, well, this was a sign of God. COVID is a sign of the judgment. And if you take the COVID vaccine, it's the mark of the B666. Where do you get that from? It's not in there anywhere. You're speaking things that just aren't true. And it's an insult to the person of God. It's an insult to the word of God. And we should not allow it to continue. If you look at what the Bible says about Jesus, he was fully God and fully man. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He was really dead. He was really raised from the grave. He really ascended back into heaven. He was the atoning sacrifice for our sin and in Christ alone is salvation you hear people talk about that in the context of the church or in spiritual things and they say these things in such a way that they aren't true to the fullest sense of the word and we have to reject it we have to say that's not what the Bible says your speech gift quote unquote is inconsistent with the knowledge of God's word and it has to be rejected so Paul is dealing with the speech gifts And the fact that they aren't rooted in factual, biblical, godly knowledge. And Paul is going to begin to deal with this very quickly after this introduction ends. So the spiritual gift of speech and knowledge then is the ability to know the truth and to teach others the truth about God. Simple as that. The ability to know and the ability to communicate truth to other people. Now, these are specifically mentioned for two reasons. One, speech and knowledge were very, very important within the secular Corinthian Greek-dominated culture. Wisdom was the greatest of all things. And so there was an innate appreciation and value over wisdom and knowledge. So if you had one of those quote-unquote wisdom knowledge gifts, you were automatically placed on a pedestal in the minds of other people. Secondly, these gifts, speech and knowledge, were terribly misused within the church, and Paul is going to address that very specifically later on in the letter that he's written to the Corinthian church. So the most prized gifts held by the Corinthians likely led to some of the most fierce divisions that existed within the church. So these prominent spiritual gifts were one of the causes for some of the most fierce divisions within the body of believers. So that's one of the reasons why Paul specifically identifies these 
gifts in the front end of this and, and a part of the theme development. So truthful speech about God and about salvation has led to truthful knowledge about God and salvation, which has led to the conversion of these that make up the church of God in Corinth. Now let me tell you this. You and I are saved because someone spoke to us truth about who God is and about how we must be saved. Isn't that right? If you were taught, well, you know, God is this divine being out there and He's kind of everywhere and with the rustling of the breeze and the falling of the rain and in the meadows of the field, all those kinds of things, God is everywhere. And if you just love this divine being and you try to live a good life, then God's going to check your book when you stand before Him and all is going to be well, right? Wrong. What does the Word say? There is only one way that man can be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ. He Himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Me. So, truthful speech that's going to lead the lost to salvation is going to be rooted in the truth of what God's Word says. And apart from that, people will be deceived into what real salvation is. So, truthful knowledge and truthful speech has led to the conversion of all true saints everywhere, you and I included. We cannot be saved apart from the truth of who God is and how He has provided for our salvation, which is confirmed in verse 6, even as the testimony, the speech concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So, this is what Paul is saying. If you remember from last time, Paul visited the city of Corinth. He stayed there for a lengthy amount of time. He was pivotal in the establishment of this church. He was an evangelist. He was a missionary. He was a discipler. He was a church planner. He knows what they heard, and he knows they were saved. And this is what he is saying. Truthful speech and truthful knowledge rooted in the gospel message, which has brought about your salvation, This testimony has been confirmed in you. The grace of God expressed through Jesus Christ is this testimony, which is rooted in true knowledge. And the truth of this leads to their salvation, which has been proven in them and confirmed by them because of the divine grace that they enjoy, because of the evidence of the spiritual gifts that are prevalent within their church. True speech and true knowledge about God is the gospel message. Period. The gospel message is the truth about who God is, and it's the way by which sinful man can know this God. It's as simple as that. When we share the gospel message with others, it is the means by which they can be saved. Why? Because it is rooted in the grace of God, which is true And it has to be shared. I remember this story just popped in my head. You know the story of Helen Keller, born uh, blind and deaf, and learned to read through the development of Braille. And one of the pers- one of the ladies that taught her this process was a Christian. And as a part of this learning process, she shared with Helen Keller 
who Jesus was and how she could be saved. And Helen Keller's testimony was this. I'm so glad you told me that. I knew who he was. I just didn't know how to be saved. I knew there was a God out there. I just didn't know what his name was and how I could be saved. There is only one way we can be saved. That is the essence of the gospel message. Well, Paul isn't concerned with just speech and knowledge, but let her see all gifts. And this is why Paul will address all gifts later on in the letter. But he says here in verse 8, so that you are not lacking in any gift. All gifts are going to be rooted in knowledge. All gifts are a part of God's divine grace given to believers for a very specific purpose. So the gifts they possess are not limited to speech and knowledge, but are inclusive of all the gifts that God makes available. And these gifts are evident within them. And these gifts are to be used for what purpose? These gifts are to be used for the building of the kingdom of God. This is what Paul would say to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he, God, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. By the way, the body of Christ is the kingdom of God. The body of Christ is God's kingdom being worked in our world today. So, what God has given to us in service to Him is not to be a matter of pride. Yeah, well, I've got a speaking gift, aren't I? Something special. You should be privileged to know such an individual as me. That's not what it's about at all. The gifts God gives to us are to be used to build up His kingdom. He's the giver of the gift. He's the one who gets the glory for the usage of the gift. And any benefit that comes out of the gift should be for his kingdom, not for the individual who possesses the gift. So these will be, develop, will be developed later on in the letter. And oh, by the way, what is one of the most popular chapters in all of the book of Corinthians? Is it not 1 Corinthians 13? And what does Paul do there? Paul contrasts the speaking gifts if they are exercised apart from love. If I have the wisdom, if I have the knowledge, if I have the prophecy, and it's not in love, then what am I? I'm worthless. I'm like a noisy symbol. It means nothing if what I do isn't done in love. So it's apparent that they weren't exercising their gifts in love, whether it be the speaking gifts or the knowledge gifts, the combination of the two, or any other spiritual gift. So Paul will address this, but again, he's establishing the theme which with, with which his voracious attack is going to come as he calls this dysfunctionality into order. So Paul is an apostle called by the will of God, speaking to God's church in Corinth. It is filled with grace and gifts. The fourth part of the outline being developed here, where the fourth theme is, while we wait on the Lord. Now, there was a very loose acknowledgement of this, that there is division over the bodily resurrection that Paul is going to deal with later on. But he kind of sets the stage for that here. But I think he also couches the usage of spiritual gifts in the reality of one day Jesus is going to come back. And until he does, we have to be faithful to do the things that God has called us to do. So while we wait on the Lord, number one, 
He will be revealed. 7b, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So until he returns, we are to faithfully use our gifts given to us by his grace. What we do in the present time, the here and now, is in preparation for what is to come, and that is the full realization of God's kingdom. While not unique to the Corinthians, it is not uncommon for people to live in the present as if there is no future. Christians must understand that we live in the last days. Virtually every generation has believed that in my lifetime, Jesus is going to come back and pull the plug on this world as we know it, and it's all going to come to an end. We are to live with that kind of expectancy, being faithful to do all that we are called to do to build up his kingdom until that comes. We're not to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. We are to live understanding that Jesus is going to come back, and when he does, I'm going to stand before him, and I'm going to give an account for my life. If Jesus were to ask you, what have you done with the spiritual gifts I have given to you, what are you going to say? Well, you know, God, I was you know, trying to make a name for myself, and I was you know, trying to provide better for my family, and you know, I needed to go play softball or tennis or golf or something, and I just had a lot of communal activities that were really important to me, and so I'm really, really sorry I wasn't a faithful steward to what you entrusted me with, but I'm sure you look the other way, right? You're a God of love, forgiveness, right? Isn't that who you are? We're going to stand before God. We're going to give an account. And don't we want to hear God say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That should be the way with which we use our gifts while we wait for him to come, because he will be revealed. We must understand that our lives are to be lived, not for ourselves, not for pleasant pleasure, but for the glory of God. This is what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 10. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So we're to live our lives in view of His imminent return and with glorifying Him with our lives because when He is revealed, we're going to see a God that we can't possibly adequately describe with the terminology that we have. We are just going to say, wow. If only I would have known. Well, we do know. Christ will return to establish his kingdom. Life on this earth as we know it is going to come to an end. And God's eternal kingdom will be ushered in. And he will be revealed. What we see dimly, we will see clearly. We'll see him face to face. Oh my goodness. What a day that's going to be. So this God who saves us by his grace and has sanctified us by his grace. Number two, he makes us blameless. Verse eight, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remembering that Paul is establishing the central themes that are going to be the content of everything that he says from this point forward. Here we see the continuing work of God's grace and our sanctification joined together with eschatological terminology. So it's very, very important that we understand what Paul is saying here. 
He is speaking to these people who don't really resemble the sanctifying work of God through their lives. But he's saying this, that God is going to make you blameless. He uses the phrase, confirm you to the end. That word confirm means to secure till the end. I want to tell you what good news that is. The good news is this. You and I, we're going to fail. We're going to fail regularly. We might even fail terribly. But God is going to secure us until the very end. Why? Because our salvation given to us by grace is sustained in us by His grace. Again, if our entrance into heaven was dependent upon our ability to perfectly live out our salvation, nobody would get in. So He will make us blameless to the end. He's going to secure us until the very end. He says, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word blameless means perfect in the day, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the sanctification that Paul mentions in verse 2 is repeated here and joined with the day of our Lord, which is an overly clear reference to Christ's return. The day of the Lord, you've heard that repeated over and over and over. The day of the Lord is the day when He's going to come back. And so Christ is going to make us perfect in the day that He returns. So this positional sanctification, being holy and blameless and righteous just like Christ is, which you and I cannot achieve in this life while on this earth, is going to be fully realized when He returns. This is an incredibly encouraging truth for a people who are going to be brought to task for the sinful lifestyles that they are living. And here's what it communicates to me. As far away from the project we should be, God is still merciful and gracious. God is still faithful to His promise. God isn't going to abandon us. God is going to walk with us through the journey He understands all that we're going to do and why we're going to do it. He knows it before we're going to do it. And we might look at the decisions our children make and shake our heads and say, why would you ever do such a thing? But God already knows. He already sees. And He is going to make us blameless in the day of our Lord. As imperfect as we are, as much as we may struggle with sin and faithfulness, a day is coming, that day of the Lord, when we will be perfected and presented to the Lord spotless, without any fault or without any blemish. This is because of the grace of God alone. This is what Paul wants to establish for these people to understand. Thirdly, he is faithful. While we're waiting on the Lord to return, we need to be reminded that he is faithful. Verse 9, God is faithful to whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what God has promised in our sanctification, He will complete. He is always faithful. He saves us by His grace. He sustains us with His grace. And He is faithful to us because of His grace. Our fellowship with God the Father is certain 
because of our fellowship with His one and only Son and our present struggles with sanctification and faithful living will one day be over in the day of the Lord. And what a glorious day that will be. I'll leave you with this. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We can't even see it or understand it. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Positional sanctification realized. Because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Himself, excuse me, fixed on Him, purifies Himself just as He is pure. That positional sanctification that exists within our salvation is to be what we are pursuing in our life. The usage of our gifts as we wait for Him Understanding it's all been established by His grace, sustained by His grace, secured in His grace, has nothing to do with ourselves. So Paul the Apostle called by God to speak to God's church in Corinth, who wants them to understand just how important wisdom and knowledge is in the teaching of the gospel message through the grace given to you with the possession of spiritual gifts, as you diligently, faithfully sanctify yourselves as you wait for Him, listen to what God wants to say. (laughs) Paul has not emotionally manipulated them. I don't think for a second Paul sat down and thought, well, how am I going to help these people understand just how harsh it's going to be with what needs to be heard? I believe Paul just said, God, speak to me. Give me the words. And he sat down and out they flowed. And so this is God's word to God's church for all time. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and a merciful God. We thank you that you've enabled us to understand your grace in such a way that we would give ourselves to you, that we would accept you as Lord and Savior, that we would make a commitment to live for you all the days of our lives. And Father, we understand just how impossibly inconsistent that confession is. We are so imperfect, so far from what you've called us to be. But we thank you that your mercy and your grace sees us through our failures. Father, I pray that your grace would become that much more amazing in our lives as we think about the promise that you've made to us to be with us, to never leave us or forsake us, to seal us through the crucifixion of Christ, through our faith and what it is He's done for us. God, I pray that You would set us free from the influence of the presence of sin all around us. You've set us free from the consequence of sin. You've set us free from the power of sin. Help us to willingly choose to free ourselves from the presence of all those things around us so that we could live a life that resembles Your grace given to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship Him.